morning, would you uh, open in prayer with me? Hear our cry, O God. Listen to our prayer. From the ends of the earth, we call out to you. We call out in times when our hearts grow faint to lead us to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been our refuge. You, Lord, are our hiding place. And we long to dwell in your tent forever, to take refuge in the shelter of your wings, to sing from the shadow of your wings. Our soul finds rest in you, God, alone, and our salvation comes from you. We pour out our hearts to you, God, for you are our refuge. Pray this in your name. Amen. Well, before I start preaching, I would like to do as Zach and Ben did and say Happy Mother's Day. Um, I don't know where we'd be without our mothers. Um, We certainly wouldn't be here without them, at least. And so uh, today is a good day to to thank your mother. Um, Today I'm I'm not going to be preaching some kind of uh, moralistic sermon about how to be a better mother. and you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will fall into line. And that's the best way to be uh, the best mother possible. And as a child, um, doing the same thing, it's the best way to honor your mother as well. And, uh, so today's not um, going to be a, that type of sermon. Um, I'm also not going to be preaching from Mark today, as we have been. Um, when Joe comes back, he'll, he'll finish up Mark 10 and then... Um, we should be taking a break from uh, Mark for a while. But this morning, when I, as, as Zach said, I'm, I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 63. I'm going to talk about different types of psalms, and then I'm going to preach the psalm, and then I'm going to end with a recap of the psalm rather than a specific application, because it's meant to be an expression of praise to God that speaks for itself. And uh, we can look at the way David worshipped and and glean a lot from it. But we also want to be careful to avoid, uh, as Joe would say, uh, a certain type of moralism. That, you know, this is how David worshipped, so you need to try harder and worship better. uh, In order to avoid that type of mindset that says, um, we want to do Christianity right, and if we want to do this church thing right, then we really better crank down on our processes and get everything cookie-cuttered. In order to avoid that, sort of, we've got to worship really hard like David did here, as Joe would say, to avoid that moralistic type of mindset. Um, I want to talk about different types of psalms and then preach the psalms and end with a, with a recap of the psalm. So if you look in your Bibles, <clears throat> backwards from Psalm 63, paying attention specifically to the superscriptions above the psalms themselves, you'll see Psalm 58 for the director of music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy, of David, a miktam. Psalm 59, for the director of music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy, of David, a miktam, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Psalm 60, for the director of music, this one, to the tune of the Lily of the Covenant, a miktam of David, this one for teaching when he fought Aram Neriam and Aram Zobah, and when Joab returned and struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Psalm 61, for the director of music, this one with stringed instruments. And Psalm 62, for the director of music, this one specifically for Jaduthun. You see, these are songs that are, that are meant to be sung. 
And often these superscriptions are a note to the director of music for the way that the, the music is to be played. Uh, I was at this jazz band concert a week or two ago here for my niece, and uh, I thought, well, I'll hang around for 30 or four minute, 30, 40 minutes, and I'm out of here. Uh, but I got lucky because it was only 10 minutes per, and so I got the chance to see each different director direct all the three different bands. And uh, as I watched each director come up, they were different. One was kind of gentle, and, and he gave the musicians their cues gently. And one had a lot of pizzazz, and he was really given those cues. And then uh, I don't know if you know Gundy at the high school, but he really gets into it. And, you know, he really holds the holds, and, you know, at the end he just closed it with a bang, and he really gets into it. And, uh, you know, some psalms are a psalm of joy, and some are sadness. Some are like a melancholy uh, jazz song. Some are reverent hymns, and, and some are sang from a place of right orientation, and some are sang from a place of disorientation, and some are sang wanting to get back to that place of right orientation. I considered if I were to hold up a hymnal today and tell you, I'm, I'm going to preach through hymn number 63, so if you'd all get out your hymnals and turn to page uh, hymn number 63, we'll get started today. Figured, you know, you might raise an eyebrow. You might look at me strangely. Who knows, maybe someone might even say, you can't do that. Uh, but if I were to hold up the book of Psalms, it is a hymn book, and it is scripture, and it is found in this, this collection of books, this anthology of books called the Bible. And so the book of Psalms was originally the hymn book of the Jewish people. And when they'd go to the temple and sing songs of praise, they'd sing from those scriptures. In the Psalms, as I said, there's Psalms of joy and praise. Uh, some are a lament of sadness. And in them we find an, an earnest longing an often desperate cry out to God, and there's beauty in praising God no matter the circumstance, such as when Job loses everything, and he says, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord, or whether Paul is singing in prison and acknowledging that whether well-fed or in plenty or, or whether he's in want, that he's content, and there's beauty in that. See, there's different types of scripture, and some scripture is meant to engage the mind, uh, Paul in Romans in his discourse on the law, I never thought diagramming sentences out could be an enjoyable thing. But if you were to diagram out Romans, it is. It's very engaging. It's engaging to the mind. But there are other scriptures that are a bleeding heart appeal. It's just a crying out to God. Some scripture is meant to grab you and move you. It's meant to be a song of songs that is sung. It's supposed to be, you know, my, my darling, you're a lily among the thorns. Your eyes are like doves. And in the Bible, we have praises. And we have, you know, one wise saying after another. We have wisdom literature. We have poetry. Uh, we have letters from one person to another and letters from one person to a whole church. We have historical accounts. We have songs of love. We have prayers of despondency from, from the lowest pits of life to the highest mountains and, and everything in between from the beauty of nature to the topic of government to the topic of interpersonal relationships, things written for the individual. We have it all here in Scripture. And so as we approach Psalm 63 today, I want to approach it with a right lens. There's a saying, you can view the world in, in rose-colored glasses. And when it comes to Scripture, I think we can, you can tend to put on me glasses and look for where does this apply to me where, where am I in this? And, and what do I get out of this? And you can have a self-centered approach uh, instead of a God-centered approach when it comes to his word. And I find that people can put on their me glasses and 
Or they can put on their Jesus glasses. They can even put on their gospel glasses and still read the scriptures in a way that is either self-serving or in a way that is God-serving and with a heart that is ready to hear what he would have to say to you. So with that, let's turn to the word and and very briefly uh, pray that as we read, we read with a, a right heart. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and give us the mind of Christ as we approach your word. Amen. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. So he's on the run from his son Absalom who's trying to kill him and he's in hiding out in the desert country of Judah. And he writes this psalm. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand holds me up. Those who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for the jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouth of liars will be silenced. First thing that we need to notice, number one, is that this psalm is an acknowledgement that the way you approach God matters. Number two, that it is an expression of praise. And number three, that it is acknowledgement of truth. I'll spend a few minutes on each point, and then we'll close with a song. Number one, this psalm is an acknowledgement that the approach made to God matters. O God, you are my God. This is a, this is a hymn for the church, but uh, this is the Old Testament, and the word term church hadn't been used in that way yet. So, so you could say it this way. This is a psalm for the people of God. This, this psalm, this song is for the people of God. But about God... Uh, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. <clears throat> so right away, the first verse 1, opening, with the approach to God, first and foremost, is, <clears throat> is he your God? This is a hymn, <clears throat> excuse me, for the people of God. But for those who might happen to wander in, who might happen to be an inquirer or an unbeliever, Seeing what happens, 1 Corinthians 14 talks about if an unbeliever or inquirer comes into the, the body and sees what happens, that it should still be intelligible and understandable for the outsider, so that, 1 Corinthians says, so that they are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so that they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. If someone were to come in and hear Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you, so that it might convict them and it might turn them to worship. To hear that, Oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you, I can't imagine that wouldn't affect them. I know it affects me. Verse 4, seeing people crying, I'll praise you, and watching them lift their hands in God's name. That, you know, when you're singing and you see people lift their hands, I know that affects me. And I love it, and it makes me want to do it, but I, want to, I do want to be careful 
not to try and make this into like you have to raise your hands when you are um, singing. That, that language is there, but he's also laying on his bed remembering it. So I don't mean to um, try and say that one form of praise and worship is higher than another or something. I was talking with my wife about the song, There's, there's Power in the Blood, and there's the, the line, Would you be free from your burden of sin? And, and just tearing up at that song. And then in another time, that same exact song, there's wonder-working power in the blood and just clapping away. And so it's not about whether you're tearing up or whether you're clapping or whether you're having your hands raised or what type of expression it is. But it is supposed to affect us. Worshiping God should stir your heart somehow. And I'm not saying that you need to like raise your hands next time or fall on the ground and worship God, but I am saying that I do want to encourage both for myself and others, that the language of worshiping with hands lifted up and the language of worshiping falling down are both scriptural, just as it's scriptural for prayer and meditation and keeping yourself from going too far so that you stay intelligible and understandable are also scriptural. The approach to God matters in that, first and foremost, is God your God. And then second, under the approach, earnestly, I seek you. Now, because I'm a fan of the original language, the Hebrew word there for earnestly is sakar. In many transla- I bring that up because in many translations, it doesn't say earnestly. It says early, early I seek you. A primitive root of the word sakar means properly to dawn, figuratively, to be up early at any task with the implication of earnestness by extension, to search for with painstaking fervor, to inquire early. It's, it's first thing in the morning, like right away. It's what you wanted to get going at, and you get going at it, and you do it. It's the idea of choosing this day whom you will serve. Like who is this day for? Who are you going to live it? Why are you going to live it? And, and, and what is the importance of most importance in your day when you wake up? Is it God that you earnestly seek above all other things in the morning. Made me think of this song lyric. Before my feet can hit the ground, Lord, I give this day to you. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in. Lord, I give this day to you. Uh, John Chrysostome, an early church father who lived from 347 to 407 A.D., that's only 350 to 400 years after Christ died and was resurrected, uh, he wrote this that it was decreed and ordained by the primitive church fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of this psalm, Psalm 63. He also observed that the spirit and soul of the whole book of psalms is contracted into this psalm. In fact, uh, the early church had the practice of uh, beginning the singing of this psalm at each Sunday service with Psalm 63, which they called the morning hymn. It's, it's one of the most famous hymns in, in Christianity, and I think that's because it recognizes the importance of thirsting after God with our souls and longing for Him spiritually and, and bodily, despite any pressure, pressure we might have in a dry and weary land, uh, such as David faced at this point in his life. And if we were there, I doubt we would be writing songs. Um, and if we did, they might be the type of song that, that contain a lot of urgent requests. God, help me, get me out of here. And, and David did write a psalm like that, Psalm 3. And so that's a proper expression of praise too. 
But it is interesting that this Psalm 63 contains no petition. David expresses longing for God's presence, his, his praise, and, and, and there's joy and fellowship with God, but there's not one word in this psalm asking for temporal or even a spiritual blessing. And so David recognized that, this, that in Psalm 63, in worship, dry and weary land or not, that the approach made to God matters. It matters in your heart and, and, and not in your actions. Um, and so how do you and I and also us as a body make our approach to God in worship in a psalm. In worship in a psalm, whether it's, it's reading, we read a psalm for our scripture reading today, whether it's in singing and, and we sing it, whether it's in meditation upon your bed, the heart matters in our approach to God because worship isn't just, I don't want anyone to misunderstand it, it's not just Sunday morning. It's, it's, uh, the word worship in Hebrew is, is evid, it means to serve, and so um, while it does include worship as a body, it includes worship in every form in your life, singing, reading, meditating on your bed. And so, number two, this psalm from the hymnal, pe- hymnal book of the people of God is an expression of praise to look at and glean from. Verse two here in Psalm 63, it's a vision. I've seen you in the sanctuary. The word is literally holiness. I've seen you in your holiness. And there's one aspect of holiness, which is being set apart to be different, to be set aside for for a purpose. And so David is praising God and saying, I've seen you in your otherness, in your distinct separate place, in your sanctuary, and I've beheld your glory and power. And because of this, because I have seen this and recognized that your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you, I'll praise you, I'll lift up my hands to you, and I'll be satisfied. There's a lot of deep terms there, and, and Joe and I spent a lot of time poring over these terms. Um, there's some good nuggets there. Terms, terms like hesed for God's covenant love. Your love is better than life. That's his, his covenant love. It's promises. There's phrases like praising him as long as we live, which literally mean praising through the ages. Then there's realities in here that we can understand. Uh, if you think about eating a meal and how it satisfies just the how, how a rich meal can really fulfill and, and, and satisfy your body. Um, thinking of that imagery, I was talking to someone this week, and they said, I just love a good hot meal. It's just so much better than something on the run. And, and so just thinking of that imagery, it's, it's there for us to, to see and, and um, think about, to, to see a zeal, an earnest zeal, a longing which is out of need and desperation, yet makes no appeal for blessing and instead has a present, past, and future ring to it. Presently, verse 1, I seek you. Past, verse 2, I have seen you. Future, verses 3, 4, and 5, I will praise you and be satisfied by you. And that past, present, future pattern repeats through the rest of the psalm. And as David is making many declarative statements, verses 3, 4, 5, 8, 9 through 11, Um, He's doing this because, verse 2, he had experiential knowledge. He had seen God. But he's also doing it in verse 6 because he's remembering God. Something to think about, remembering God in your life. Think about David's life. He might be remembering God helping him fight off a bear and then fight off a lion. He might be remembering the stones and the sling and Goliath and defeating a giant. He might be remembering his friend Jonathan and the blessing that he was from God and all that God had done for him in his life. He could be remembering Saul and how he triumphed over him. And now David, here he is, post Bathsheba, post killing her husband Uriah, 
and he's on the run while his son Absalom is trying to kill him. And he's in the desert, hiding in the country uh, of Judah, living in a dry and weary, weary land. Yet on his bed, he's remembering God. Maybe he's thinking about Solomon and the blessing of Solomon that came through, his, came through Bathsheba despite his own sin. Maybe he's remembering how God has upheld him with his right hand despite the depth of David's sin. He's remembering God's covenant love for him, his promises to him. And David is, is here. The son usurped his throne, and he's seeking to kill his father. And there's some parallel imagery with that, um, biblically, with the devil trying to usurp God's throne and kingship. Uh, David, there's some parallel imagery with, with David and Christ. David's in the desert. Why? Because Absalom, his son, is trying to kill him. And, and maybe you could make the case that he's in the desert being tested. I don't know, but consider Christ spent some time in the desert, and he was tempted, and Satan tried to test him. And if you consider the context wider biblically, consider the New Testament, and on the road to Emmaus, Jesus was preaching from the scriptures about himself. And it says he started with Moses and the prophets and went through the Psalms and explained all that was written in scripture concerning himself. So that is, if if Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and preaching himself from Psalm 63... What might he say? Might he talk about David and suffering in the wilderness? He said on the road to Emmaus, how slow you are to believe all the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer? Jesus might be preaching himself. um, He might be preaching from David's earnestness in prayer and and his early morning seeking as David cried out to God. Jesus might say as the writer of Hebrews that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is drawing on both the old covenant priest Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, and also drawing on the new covenant promise of eternal salvation as he became a high priest, the high priest designated by God after the order of Melchizedek, and he became the source of eternal salvation. You see this psalm is an expression of praise, as is Psalm 62 before it, that says, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. So in this psalm, we need to notice number one, that this is a psalm that is acknowledging that the way a person approaches God matters. Number two, that is an expression of praise. And number three, that it is an acknowledgement of truth. This number three, the psalm from the hymnal book of the people of the kingdom of God is an acknowledgement of truth. Moving on to verses 9 through 11, they talk about a future recognition of truth. And I have a short little story thinking thinking ahead about the future recognition of truth. In, psalm, in the psalm, there's two different outcomes, and, and there's two different outcomes in life to the gospel, too. And, you know, I was talking with a relative of mine who I hadn't seen in a while, and we were talking about, how are you certain about what the gospel is? And I was telling him that lately I like to translate it literally as good news, and the reason I like to do that is because uh, people can hear gospel and have a different idea uh, they're different gospel. <clears throat> We're warned about that in the New Testament. Paul writes and warns that 
There were people coming around preaching a gospel, a gospel that was different than the one we received. And what Paul was saying was that this different gospel, this different good news, it was really no good news at all. And it's, it's all in Galatians 1 and 2. If, if you want to turn there, you can. And I, I don't want you to consider this a digression from God's truth that I'm bringing this up. I'm coming back to Psalm 63 and verses 9 to 11 to recognize uh, <clears throat> the outcome of two different ways of life. But on this example of discussion from the Psalms of, of salvation and, and the eternal, uh, the fulfillment of salvation in the gospel and thinking on uh, a gospel, a good news that is no good news at all, if, if we were to take Psalm 63 and we were to take it in a moralistic way and sort of add something to it or subtract something to it, if we were to add to it and say, well, you've got to praise God with your hands raised up, or if we were to subtract something from it and say, well, you can't make a plea to God the way that Psalms 3 does, we'd be, we, we, we might be in danger of making Psalm 63 a gospel that is no gospel at all. And uh, so you see what was happening when you read Galatians 2, was that the people, the Jewish believers, were taking the good news and they were adding the works of the law to it. They were adding circumcision and Jewish customs and they were making a gospel which was no gospel at all. They were taking the idea of justification and, and how are you made right with God and they were attempting to browbeat everyone into submission by misuse of the scriptures, saying it all has to be my way and how I view the gospel. They were picking and choosing parts that they liked and ignoring the rest. And quoting Paul here, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached is not of human origins. Paul says, I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul knew that a person's not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified and so taking Psalm 63, we can't take it and, and make it a work. We can't take it and say the way you relate to God is through worship and it has to be with your hands raised up. And we can't take and subtract from that. And we can't try and force anything into it that isn't there. We can't use Scripture that way. Uh, and we can't do... We, we don't want to do that with the Gospel either. If we take the Gospel and we re- impose extra restrictions on it and because we want people to come our way the same way that the Jewish believers were doing, then we're making it no good news at all, and it's a different gospel. If we try and and take the gospel and make it a tool to sort of spiritually strong-arm one another around, then, and not care whether we're a stumbling block to our brothers or sisters, then, then we've made a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. It's only a tool meant to try and control one another, then that sort of use of the gospel wouldn't be any good news at all. And so we don't want to do that with the Psalms either. We don't want to try and and take it and mean you you have to worship one way or you can't worship another way. Uh, We don't want to do that. We want to just take it and recognize the truth for what it is. Psalm 63, verses 9 through 11, that there are different outcomes. The truth that there are different outcomes to a life that either praises God or, as verse 11 says, lies about him. Verse Psalm 63, 9-11, Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouth of liars will be silenced. See, this is a recognition of truth. 
of what will happen to the enemies that David's speaking about. And, but that's a harder part to look at. I think it is easier to look at verses 1 through 8 and read them very joyfully, also somber with remembrance and affirming that God is our help, that he upholds us by his right hand. Uh, reading all that praise in verse 4 and, and 5, being satisfied and thinking on the bed in verse 6, it's, it's, it's comforting and peaceful. It's very comfortable. And then all of a sudden we run across verses 9 through 11, and, and we might feel a bit shocked and say, well, wow, is all of that necessary to say? Like, do we need to talk about killing? Is, why does it seem like the Old Testament is sometimes filled with death and swords and referring to people as dog food, as food for the jackals? But what it is is that there's a recognition of truth here, and it's, and it's by contrast. It's by looking at truth through the end result. And you're either going to be those who swear by God's name or a liar. And the liar who denies God only tries to use true-sounding things as a tool to serve their purpose. And so it's a hard truth to recognize, verses 9 through 11, that these things are going to happen. And it's a terribly hard truth to come to terms with. It's like, it's difficult, and how do you do that? And this is a psalm, and it's, and it's meant to be sung, so, so how do you sing that part? You know, there's a, a song by Bob Dylan, You Gotta Serve Somebody, and it kind of parallels what Jesus said once, that uh, you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and, and hate the other. And so the lyrics are kind of fitting to the song. They say, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You could be high street or low street. You might like to wear cotton. You might like to wear silk. You might like to drink whiskey. You might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar. You might like to eat bread. Maybe you're sleeping on the floor or sleeping in a king-size bed, but you're still going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And I might add that it could be yourself you're trying to serve, and then if that's true, you have to ask yourself if you're serving yourself, if that is serving the Lord. And so there's this recognition of truth in verses 9 through 11 that can be sung, and I think there are, uh, the harder truths still can be sung. I think there are other hymns within Christianity that I want to look at that can help us do that. Um, because this is a psalm. And the hard parts might not be as hard to sing as, as we might think. Uh, you've probably heard the battle hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. And it sounds, if you didn't know English, it might sound like a really happy song. But if you were to just look at the lyrics and, and see he's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, he hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. And so we look at it and we can see that it can be sung or the words can be meditated on as true. And so I think it's helpful to look at songs like that. There's another song, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. It kind of has a couple lines in it that Verse 2 of Psalm 63 sings about the power and glory, and uh, battle belongs to the Lord. We sing glory, honor, power, and strength to the Lord. And there's another line that in that song, no weapon that's fashioned against us can stand. The battle belongs to the Lord. Verses 9 and 10 is talking about David's enemies, and David's enemies have weapons that's fashioned against him, but they're not going to stand 
Uh, they're going to be handed over to the sword, and his enemies will meet their end. They will meet their death. And it's the, it, it's the end of our enemies, the end of the final enemy, the end of sin and death. Um, it will also be given over to the sword. The enemies who seek after David will be put to the sword, and the enemies who seek after us. The final enemy of sin and death will be given over to the sword, and death itself will be put to death. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? It's been swallowed up. Thanks be to God, because he's given us our Lord Jesus Christ and victory with him. And so that is something to sing about. And if you were to turn to Deuteronomy 32, the whole chapter of it, 43 verses long, it's, it's the song of Moses, and it ends, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all, go- all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children, and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him, and he cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. And, and just like song lyrics, we can think on the words of them when we're alone on our bed, possibly. And just in the fashion of a psalm, we can also sing them. We can sing them and cry them out. We can sing them in a loud voice with the recognition of the truth. You know, it's, it's true that God is not willing that any should perish. But it's also true that he is just and he is fair and he will do what is right. And when he does, Scripture tells us, Exodus 18, and he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God sent his son to save the world, not condemn it. He sent him to save you and to save me. His whole redemptive plan, it doesn't have to be forced in. You can simply sing the psalm, approach him in earnest, praise him with hands lifted up, praise him when you're lying down clinging to him to sing the recognition of his truth. It's a beautiful psalm to sing. It's a beautiful psalm to think on. And it's a good one to ponder on in our beds, whether it's in the morning as we seek him, or in the night as we remember him. Would you pray with me? And then we'll close with a song. Lord, we pray, knowing that our salvation comes from you alone, our souls find rest in you, God. You are our salvation, and our honor depends upon you. You're our mighty rock and refuge. We trust in you at all times, Lord. We pour out our hearts to you, for you, God, are our refuge. You know that low-born men are but a breath and the high-born are but a lie. And if weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. You, God, are strong. You, God, are loving. And you, God, are our God. And earnestly we want to seek you. We pray this in your name. Amen.